In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do us part, right? Those are uh, the basic wedding vows that I'm, I trust many people in this room have either said them or an iteration of these wedding vows. And if we really understand the meaning of these words, then we also understand the implications of these words and the varying ways they apply in our marriage. Right? We recognize, uh, maybe not even fully so, when we are there at the altar, but we do recognize that as we say those words and say, I'm going to be with you regardless what the situation, what the circumstances, we're going to get through this thick or thin all the way till the end. Uh, and then we recognize as we say those words, there is then a, a commitment that's connected to those words that last a lifetime, or we trust, right, in, in the context of Scripture, the idea of one man, one woman, uh, lifelong commitment. Uh, we would be foolish to say that I could say these words, but then when things happen in my life, when things happen in our marriage, and I have to start exercising that, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, and sickness does come down the line, and I say, well, you didn't really, you didn't really expect me to, to follow through on those things, did you? You say, no, I absolutely did expect you to commit to those because that is the commitment that we made on the front end. And there's going to be a lot of variations in our life about how those exact words apply. I mean, you're five years in your marriage and your spouse becomes disabled for one reason or the next. I mean, we're talking about, for okay, this is for worse, right? This is, if I think about the amount of money it's going to take, the amount of time it's going to take out of my life to make sure I'm investing the right kind of love and nurture into my spouse, given the unfortunate circumstances, I know that it may be for poor. I have to invest my savings and I have to figure out how I'm going to make sure that I care for my spouse and we actually are able to look at the front end of those vows that actually helped us understand when something happens, there is no question about my part to play in this. My commitment is for better or for worse. No matter the circumstance, we're in this together, and I am yours and you are mine. But much like our culture, unfortunately, misunderstands the lifelong commitment that is attached to marriage vows... You might be shocked to realize the all-in commitment that Christ requires of any would-be disciple. When we look at this text, and I wish you'd turn it open with me in Matthew 8, if you have your Bible, turn it open to Matthew 8, and if not, I'd love you to pull out your phone or raise your hand real high and somebody will get you a Bible from the back. But I want you to put your eyes on Matthew 8, there in verse 18, because what we see here is not an easy believism situation. We don't see here... Uh, this Well, as long as you made that, that decision years ago in your life, then the rest of your life is really inconsequential. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's more this. If you make that commitment, you turn from your sins, you, plus, you place your trust into Christ at some time in your life, then what that does is it shows you that this is, direct, this is the direction that the rest of your life goes. You see, quite a bit different, unfortunately, than maybe you've heard in your life, right? As long as you've said that prayer, as long as you trusted Christ in your heart, then, then you're good. Don't worry about the rest of that stuff. 
But discipleship, I mean, really, mathetes, right? The, the word disciple means a pupil, right? It means to be instructed. And so you have then this rabbi, we have this teacher who's in teaching you, in leading you, we're going this way. And so far from being just a one-time decision I've made, uh, and then I forget about it, what we really do is say, well, no, I've made this commitment to Christ, I've surrendered my life unto Him, and now the rest of my life is consequential. The rest of my life has implications and applications, much like the marriage vows do there at the altar. When I surrender my life to Christ, my life has implications and applications of what it actually means to follow Jesus. It's really the preaching point summed up in fewer words is, that a genuine relationship with Jesus includes a readiness to forsake worldly comforts and even close family relationships to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus' authority may challenge your idea of genuine discipleship, and it will at some point or another in your life, some of us maybe more times than others, but when we really follow Jesus, it's going to challenge our idea of discipleship, it's going to challenge our ideas of, of where we're going and where God wants us to go. But nevertheless, the call is to follow Him. So with that being said, I want you to look there at Matthew 8. Put your eyes on the text, starting in verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around Him, He gave orders. Now I don't want to focus just too much on this introductory verse, but I do want it to resonate in our minds that, that Christ is a rabbi, right? Christ is a teacher, and ultimately we see Him unveiled particularly as we see the Scripture being unfolded and at the resurrection that He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And ultimately, all those titles means that He's in charge, that He has the authority. And even here in a microcosm of that, we see Jesus talking to His disciples and saying, you're coming with me. Let's go over. He's giving orders. He's given authoritative commands in the lives of these disciples. Now, it's important to recognize that this is after the Sermon on the Mount. They've gone into Capernaum, and now they're there at the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, the crowds are coming in around him, and Jesus is saying, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, who is he talking to here? His disciples. Right? He's not talking to the whole crowd. He's not saying, okay, all of you guys, jump in the boat, everybody, and we'll figure out how to get to the other side. No, he's saying to a specific group of people who have committed to follow him, and he's giving them direct authoritative commands to let's go. Here's where we are and here's where he's here's where we're going. And he gave these orders to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's important for us, at least on the onset of the sermon, to recognize that the readiness that we ought to have to obey Christ's orders is often going to conflict with the crowd. It's often going to conflict with your own comfort, your own family arrangements, and your own personal agendas. And you follow Christ any length of time. As a matter of fact, most of you in here would just say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of you followed Christ enough in your life where you have recognized the truth behind the statement that if you're going to follow the orders of Christ, it's going to conflict with your own personal comfort. There's a lot of things that Christ commands us to do that just isn't comfortable. There's a lot of things that Christ commands us to do that gets under the skin of our families. A lot of things that happen in our life, a lot of things I would do, but Christ's Word tells me to do something else, so I do something else. I have an agenda. There's things that I want to do, but what I understand is the need to take my orders from Jesus, and I hope you do that. I hope you do that, and I'll sum it up this way on point number one. You need to take your orders from Christ, because when those things happen, and they will, we have to ask ourselves, who is in charge? Who am I following? Who do I take my orders from? 
because it's a question that everyone's going to have to ask, but I trust that for those who are in Christ, there is that uh, time at the altar, if you will, uh, where you surrendered your life to Christ, you turned from your sins, you placed your trust into Christ, and you get to these times in your life where things are uncomfortable, uh, things are being challenged in your life, whether it's your personal comfort, your family arrangements, or, or a plethora of other things. And what you do, instead of trying to figure, how do I make the right choice here? What should I do? How do I think about this? I instead go back to that time where I, I remember that I turn from my sins and I place my trust into Christ. And so what this ultimately means for me is I already know the answer to these questions. Jesus is in charge. He's authoritative. What he says goes, so I'm just taking my orders from Jesus. It, it's uh, not always easy, but it is simple when we think about the fact that Christ gives us our orders and we often convolute it with our own comfort, our relationships with others, our own personal agendas, and we just have to tell ourselves Whatever Jesus says is, is what I'm going to do. You can jot down this reference, John 6, verses 66 through 69. Now, this is a, a challenging text because we wish that Jesus would have said more. If you're like me and you read this, you wish that he would have explained what we know now in the New Testament church when he's talking to a group of his disciples. Uh, but he doesn't, and I think that's part of the point here is here in John 6, verses 66 through 69, Jesus has a larger group of disciples. I mean, we know we always talk about the 12 disciples, but we recognize in Jesus' ministries, he had hundreds of disciples, people that are unnamed, uh, people that were following him and uh, were, you know, in their own way, different measurings, depending on who the individual was, but they were said they were followers of Christ. And here is one of those instances where he has a bigger group of disciples and he's telling them that salvation comes from eating his body and drinking his blood. So he says, you want to be saved, you must eat my body and you must drink my blood. Now, it's an extreme teaching that I've already said that he didn't feel the need to further explain. Now, for us on the other side of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and even understanding uh, the meta narrative of Scripture, even as, it been, as, as it's been revealed to us today, we see that, oh, it makes sense. Jesus was just saying, I'm the bread of life. And so you see in Exodus and the manna from heaven, and, and they ate the bread to survive. And Jesus saying, well, that's me. I'm the bread of life. And ultimately, we see Jesus being the bread of life. His body was put on the cross. And then we would have to take that, take his body and recognize it as our substitute, that which nourishes us and gives us eternal life. And his blood, which was spilled out for us, was that which gives us eternal life. And then we even do this periodically in our church when we take the elements. And what do we do? We eat the bread and we drink the cup, which is the sign of the new covenant that we commit to in Christ, that he gave his body and his blood to us as a remembrance of what he did on our behalf. Now, for you and me, we're like, well, yeah, pastor, that's exactly what we do. But the crucifixion hadn't happened. The Lord's Supper had not been instituted. All we have here is Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. In verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They said, this, they said, this teaching is just too hard, is, is what they said. It's just too much. I've got to go. I can no longer follow you because you've, we've got to a point, a threshold, in which I can no longer do what you say because of my judgment. And then Jesus says in verse 67, 
he said to the 12 disciples, a smaller group, he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love that. Peter is not always known for the best answers to Jesus, is he? He's not always known to be the sharpest crayon in the box. But here, what we see is, is a wonderful statement. Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? But you have the words of eternal life. I love what Peter's saying, because Peter is probably, I mean, I can imagine the disciples are thinking, that is a hard saying. That is a hard saying. I don't completely understand, Jesus, what you're telling us to do here, but here's what I know. Where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to listen to? Do I go to the Pharisees? Do I go to the scribes? Do I, do, I go to, do I go to Caesar? Do I go to Rome? I mean, who's going to give me the words that I need that lead to eternal life? And Peter says, there ain't nowhere else to go. So regardless how hard your words are, regardless how hard your commands are, what you have are the words of eternal life. And then he finishes in verse 69 saying, And we have believed, Bastua, we've trusted in you that you have the words of eternal life. And we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, the difference between the large group of would-be disciples and, and Peter and the twelve is simply they said, He's the boss. Like if he says this is the way to go, it's, it's, it's the way we're going. And what we know on this side is they made the right decision, didn't they? In the moment, it may look like the crowd made the right decision, right? What a joke. He's saying that we need to cannibalize his body. We're out of here. But now, you were looking at 2,000 years later, we're saying, no, the 12 made the right decision. And they made the right decision because they understood who they were talking to. They take their orders from Jesus, no matter how difficult the decision was. No matter if they didn't know the full implications of what they were doing, what they said was, if Jesus said it, I'm going to believe it, I'm going to trust it, even if I don't see the whole picture. Because ultimately, if I will rest in the will of God and His path for my life and for our life as a church family, then we're going to end up in the right destination. Even if I don't know what every step of the way looks like, I'm taking my orders from Christ. You've heard of the, uh, you've heard of the, the expression WWJD, right? What, what would Jesus do? And I, I'm not a big fan of that one because there's a lot of things that Jesus would do that I could never do. Okay, but I am a fan of this one, WWJCMTD. Okay, what would Jesus command me to do? Right, that's a much better one for me. Right, you can get a bracelet with that one on your wrist. Okay, what would Jesus command me to do? I think it's a much better thought process because what we think about. When uh, we think about the authority of Christ is, in any given situation, what are the orders of Jesus in my life? What is he ordering me to do? What is his commands for me in my life? And if you think of God as sovereign and authoritative over every aspect of your life, I mean every aspect, do you believe that God has a will for every aspect of your life? And if your answer is yes, then you are forcing yourself to trust and believe that then every single thing in your life, God has a will for you and a command for you to accomplish in your life. So if you believe that God is sovereign, you believe that God has a plan, then you must recognize that we can't sit on our hands and just do whatever we want to do or do whatever the world's telling us to do because we trust that, that Christ has commands for me to do in every area of my life because he's sovereign over my life. I've got to take my orders from him. And that's over and above trusting in our culture, which in a church like this, I don't really have to convince you not to take your cues from culture. I mean, we recognize that, that the world is going to tell me to do one thing, and often, and more often than not, it's going to be in direct opposition to the commands of God. 
But there is another area that I think that is much more challenging for people like us, and that is trusting the commands of Christ over the commands of your feelings. I mean, you are going to be inundated with, this is what I feel like, or this is, this is how I'm doing right now. Uh, and we often make so many of our decisions based upon how we feel about a situation versus what Christ would command us to do in a situation. We can see it all throughout Scripture. In the men's and women's Bible study, you're dealing with it right now. Paul's in prison in Rome, and people are doubting him. People are going out preaching the gospel out of spite toward Paul. So they're going out there, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're really doing it to say, Paul, you can't be out here doing this, so we're going to do it to give you extra grief. And you have Paul, you can imagine that hurts his feelings. Anybody who's ever been rejected, anybody uh, where people have ever, have ever come and talked against you or negatively to you, you recognize that your feelings are going to get hurt. You be in ministry long enough, your feelings are going to get hurt an awful lot. And so we have to, in our life, as faithful followers of Christ, we're going to have to say, I don't feel like doing the will of God right now, but I must because it's his command. I don't feel like going to church this morning. My kids don't feel like going to church this morning. Maybe I don't feel like going to life group. I don't feel like resolving conflict in my marriage is really not the pathway for a faithful Christian. It is, what does Christ's word command me to do? And I will do that regardless of how I feel about the situations. Your parents in here, maybe your grandparents in here, I want you to think about the implications of this for your children that you're leading. I mean, when you even think about going to church, I talk to people all the time, particularly the older, the older the people, the more they talk to me about this kind of stuff. I wish I would have taken my kids to church more growing up. I wish I would have helped my children see the importance of being with God's people and sitting under the teaching of God's word. And they will even admit up, up front to this problem. There was just a lot of things going on as we grew up, and we made a lot of reasons and excuses why we didn't go, and ultimately just at times we didn't feel like going. Well, what's going to happen as your family gets older? Well, they're going to base their decision to be a part of God's family, to at least attend and to be a part of community, based upon what? Their feelings. My parents did it this way. This is the way I'm going to do it. And what we're going to say is we can't allow feelings to be the commander-in-chief in our life. Right? I have an understanding that the person who has authority in my life is not me, is not my feelings. It's, it's Christ. I'm going to take my orders from Him. And there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable situations I'm going to find myself in. And the good news is I've decided beforehand through Christ where I'm going. And I don't have to get, I get into very few situations where I have to sit and begin parsing apart the situation because I'm just not sure what direction to go. Very few times in my life because many of the situations that we deal with, we have made the decision if we're going to follow Christ faithfully well beforehand. So when we get to the situation, we look at it, we discern it, and we just keep walking. So that's, that's what good practice in our Christian faith is. Now, you may be, well, you need to sharpen your powers of discernment, which is a scriptural command to do. That may be the case, but it is the reality of the Christian that we need to do more faithful walking, and we need to do less decision-making based on our, our feelings. And basically, it really comes down to who am I taking my orders from? Honestly, I get to places in my own personal life where if I think it's the right decision, I do opposite, you know? based upon my feelings, right? If I'm like, I don't think I want to go out tonight and hang out with those people, I'd do it because I know probably the first feeling that came to my mind was the wrong one. And so it might make sense to do the opposite one. It's a little humor just to tell you that it's a normal Christian discipline 
to say no to yourself and say yes to God. It's actually a quintessential principle in the Christian life is I'm going to say no to me. I'm going to say yes to my orders from Christ. And if we can settle this in our hearts, right? This, who gives us our orders? To whom do we obey? We're not going to end up like the scribe that we see here in verse 19. And I want you to look at that. The subtle problem that Christ sees with the scribe. Verse 19. And a scribe came up to Jesus, and a scribe was a teacher of the law, well-educated, well-to-do. They could read, they could write, they could translate uh, different texts. And, I mean, it was a very uh, necessary part of society back then when you didn't have a printing press. If you wanted something written down, it had to be written by a scribe who knew what they were doing. And we have a, a guy that fits the mold there who came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Right. You see a scribe here making a, a similar mistake that people make today. And that's this, that many are quick to profess their willingness to follow Christ. Many people, they're excited. Maybe there's a super charismatic uh, pastor, not in this pulpit, but a super just excitable guy that you just look at and say, I want to be like that guy, right? Uh, and and it's just, they just get excited. And they just want to jump on the boat. And they don't really want to consider the implications. They don't count the cost as Christ calls us to do elsewhere in Scripture. And, and really, they're just excited and they have this eagerness immediately because they like some things they hear and they just want to jump on, they just want to get going. Which most of us in our evangelism, we'd find that and say, that's a win. Right? That person just got so excited, they just jumped on in. But you'll find, interestingly enough, that when, when Jesus uh, bids people to follow him, he really pushes people away from this easy believism and this easy follow me culture. People say things like, I'm ready to go with you wherever you go. And, and, and us, we're like, let's go. And Jesus is saying, I don't think you understand what you're saying, which is really what happens here. Jesus said, I don't think you understand the implications of your commitment. It's much like in Matthew 13, when we have that seed that fell on the rocky soil, which you know immediately uh, the person who is, represents that seed and that soil springs up and they're excited and they immediately say yes to the gospel. But then guess what happens? They were so eager at the beginning, but there was no root. And the sun rose and it scorched that plant and that plant ultimately died. There was an initial willingness and zeal and excitement to follow Jesus. But when the real life implications hit, when we recognize that there are applications and implications and self-denial that comes with following Jesus, they couldn't stand up to the pressure and to the realities of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And we see that same thing happening here, or at least Jesus is challenging the intent of the scribe when Jesus says this in verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To follow Jesus means you must be willing to part with even the most basic comforts of life, a home. It's interesting that he says a home, a very basic comfort in our life. Something that he takes note here that the foxes have. Maybe a hole in the ground, but at least the foxes, after they're done with work, they're done hunting, they're done you know, doing their, their duties. They can come home and every single night they go into their den and they have a place to go. The birds of the air, sure they have to build those houses, but they're flying around at the end of the day. They know that there's a place for them to roost in the evening. But he says, but the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself in Scripture, he has nowhere to lay his head. Ultimately, following Christ means that I have to be willing 
to give up even the most basic comforts of life. Now, I know this is hard because we live in the 21st century in a well-to-do country, and so I don't think you ought to think about this as if God's telling you that you're ultimately not going to have a house. I mean, it's just the odds are that most of the people in this room are going to have a roof over their heads for the rest of their life. But I don't think that that's the thrust of the point of this. Because Jesus is getting to the heart of this scribe, he understands something like a sovereign God would, an omniscient God who knows everything about us, knows what would keep us from actually following Christ. And what Jesus sees in the scribe, it says, you're pretty excited, but do you recognize that if you follow me, you may have to give up where you live? He may think that he may understand things about the scribe that we know nothing about. Maybe that scribe's a couch potato. Maybe that scribe loves every night after he's done scribing down at the courthouse, he likes going back to his house and laying in his bed and just vegging out. Maybe he lives in the basement of his parents' house and he just loves doing that. And, and what we see here is Jesus saying, I don't think you understand. I don't think you're willing to actually follow me the way that it, it truly means to follow me. I think you're following me the way that you think it means to follow me. And that's just not how it works. One of the very reasons that many of us in here, in this very room, don't obey the basic commands of God is that we would rather be comfy and cozy in our homes than follow the basic commands of God. Homes can be our escape, our refuge, our hiding place. But you know what's problematic about that? Those three terms, those three names, uh, they're titles that are given to God. Those are titles given to God in the Psalms, that He is our escape, He is our refuge, He is our hiding place. But yet many of us treat our homes like that's ultimately where we seek refuge. That's ultimately where we go to find a hiding place, to be protected to find comfort. And that's, you see the heart of now where Jesus is getting to. That's not, what, that's not what this life's about. That's not what Christianity is about. That's not what being a disciple is about. If your home would keep you from seeking refuge and comfort in God, if your home would keep you from putting a for sale sign on that thing and moving to Houston to plant a church, this isn't an announcement, it's just an illustration. then you can't follow Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you're saying, I would go, but you've already missed what it means to follow Christ. Because there are no buts when it comes to following Christ. It is absolutely I would. And all Jesus is doing is giving the expectations for discipleship to the scribe because the scribe simply doesn't understand the implications of what he was saying. Jesus will have no rivals Nothing in your life, if you're a Christian here, God will let be a rival of your relationship with Him. He calls His followers to be willing to forsake everything and hold tight to absolutely nothing. Luke 14.33 says this, Luke 14.33, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Did you see that? If there is anything that could, that would, that potentially ever could stand in between you and Christ, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Do you see how that is far and away from easy believism? Do you see how that is far away from any idea that I could, I could be saved in Christ and then live the rest of my life the way that I want to? It just doesn't work and it is not congruent with the rest of the witness of Scripture. 
Because Jesus says there's nothing in this life that could get in between us and you think that's what discipleship is. Because discipleship demands that you renounce all that you have. It doesn't mean you don't have nice things. It doesn't mean you don't have a car. Now, it might change the way that you discern whether or not you need that thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can't have nice things. It does mean that those nice things will never come before Christ. It means that those things ought to always be a stewardship to utilize for Christ. It means that all these things must be with your life under the Lordship of Christ. And those are the expectations of Christ. And, and we got to do this. It's point number two. You need to come to grips with his expectations for you. It's important, I'd say imperative, to recognize that God has expectations for you. We see it all throughout Scripture. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? It's a list of expectations, if nothing else. Much more. But at the very basic, it's expectations. Thou shall not. Thou shall not. When those are expectations. Those are realities that God says, these are my expectations for those who claim to follow me. We see this all throughout Scripture. And Jesus does a really good job each and every time he approaches somebody when it comes to following him, getting to the heart of their inability to follow him. There's a really good one. Turn to Mark 10 in your Bible. Mark chapter 10. Starting there in verse 17. Mark chapter 10, starting there in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Here's some expectations. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. I want you to notice that. Jesus said, You lack something. There's something about your view of discipleship. There's something about your view of following me that you do not comprehend and you do not understand, which ultimately we see in the life of the rich young ruler is going to keep him from following Jesus. And he says, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Some of the problems with with people who just don't have a good handle of Scripture, don't have a good hermeneutic, they don't know how to interpret Scripture and apply it to their life, will read texts like this and come to a lot of wrong conclusions. I mean, a lot of wrong conclusions. I don't even want to get into it, but even uh, verse 18, no one is good but God alone. Well, well, Jesus wasn't God. Look, he said no one's good but God alone. Except for what if Jesus is good and he's challenging what that individual is saying about his true identity, then he's just saying, if you believe that I'm good, you're calling me God. That's okay, a good hermeneutic, okay? And again, we just blew that one up real quick. Okay, um, let's see. There, there's more. The one I really want to get into is like, is here. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, again, people are going to say, well, then Jesus is saying if you want to follow him, everyone's got to sell everything they have, and we get to give it all and give it to the poor. That's not what he's saying. I mean, he is to this individual, but it's because he understands This individual cannot let go of his things, so truly can never actually follow Jesus because his grip is tight around his things, and his things are actually his God. And he thinks that he can be a good person 
store up his wealth, and get Jesus, and it's all going to be okay. And Jesus says, you can't, because you can't be a good person. All of your stuff is going to rot and be destroyed. And what you're going to be left with is, did you follow Jesus? And because Jesus ultimately knew that, and he loved this man, he told him the truth. Your problem may not be that you just have all this stuff and you're tied to it, but it could be a lot of other things. And Jesus is just getting to the heart, saying, you won't follow me because you have all these other things before me. And when Jesus told him to come follow me, which is really what you see here, right? Come follow me. And you see the beginning of this, right? How can I have eternal life? And Jesus says at the end of it, you got to follow me. So anything that keeps you from following Christ is the detriment to you not having eternal life. And here, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, the rich man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. All you see there is Jesus getting to the heart of the problem. It's what you see here in verse 19 and 20, and what you're going to see in verses 21 through 22. We're not saying that many of this we're not saying homes are bad. We're not going to say that burying our father is bad. But we're going to say it is patently true, inherently true, that if those things take precedent in your relationship with Christ, then they are bad. And they do and will get in the way of your relationship with Christ, which ultimately means in the way of what it means to be saved. So how can we keep from doing that, even as Christians? right? Even if you're, you're, you're completely in the grasp of Christ, and you're his child, we still have a tendency to hold things tightly. So we got to make sure we're, we're holding things loosely. I mean, everything you have, I mean, right here, hold it with an open hand. Right? God wants any of it, you, you're willing to give it immediately. I'm not going to keep anything from God. I'm not going to hold on to anything. I'm gonna, God does never, God, I trust, I hope in my personal life, rarely ever has to come rip something out of my hands. All he's got to do is give a suggestion, and it's gone. Right? That would be the idea of the Christian faith. Now, we're not going to do that perfectly. We're all going to struggle with that. But that is the idea of the Christian life is hold your hands open. When God wants something from your life, he, can, he just takes it. And you say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And thank you for that stewardship. I will steward everything you have me the way that you want. And if that stewardship means that you don't want me to have it anymore, I won't have it. And I'll be prepared for further stewardship in the future. It's been nice serving you, God. And it's the idea of the Christian faith. And you should expect expectations, right? That's, that's the second thing. Just expect expectations. We should never get to a place in our Christian faith where we just don't expect that God would expect something from us. And we should always expect that God has a, a desire for his children to follow him. I mean, Ephesians 2.10, right? If you have any argument about whether or not God, God has expectations for you, just read Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what is God's expectation for you? That you were created in him for good works? That he prepared beforehand. So it's not even that he's trying to think about them as you woke up this morning to give you something to do today. Beforehand, before the foundations of the world, he had everything that he expected you to do laid out in front of you that you would just walk in obedience to him and his expectations for your life. You want to talk about the sovereignty of God. There it is. And so you should expect expectations from God because he has them. One of the big problems when it comes to expectations is we often make excuses, which is what we see in verse 21 with this next individual. I want you to look at verse 21. Another of the disciples, this is 
most likely one of those larger disciples uh, that we see later, maybe not even one of the same, but in that same cohort, the larger group that later doesn't follow Christ. But here in verse 21, this is one of those that said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now, burying a family member, it was customary. I mean, the Old Testament gives us ample evidence that it was appropriate, it was moral, and it was an obligation for individuals to go and to bury their father or any family member. As a matter of fact, Levites and priests were even given the ability to leave their duties for a short period of time to ensure that they could go take care of their deceased. But Jesus makes it clear here in this text that we're not talking about business as usual here. Jesus is making a claim to who he is. Okay, So yes, it would be prudent, it would be wise for you to make sure that you take care of the deceased in your family. But what Jesus is doing here is making a statement about who he is. Because we would ultimately say, but if God told me not to, I sure wouldn't. Right? I hope that, that is your answer to that question. Right? I will go do this if God wills, if God allows. You see, the problem of the heart of the statement of this disciple is this. The call is to follow Jesus, and this is what he says. Listen to this. Lord, let me first. Let me first. The problem isn't, I need to go bury my father. The problem is, I first need to do something before I follow you. There's the problem. Did you see the problem? That's the heart of the problem here. So the heart of the problem isn't that he understands the necessity to go take care of his deceased father. Some commentators say he's not even dead yet. He's just getting older. And the disciples saying, well, I need to go take care of my aging father for the next few years. But when that's all done and over with, I'll come follow you. But you don't even have to believe that. You can believe that he, he had just died. And he's got these responsibilities. But the problem is, Lord, let me first. Because if you put anything in front of that, it loses what it means to follow Christ. Lord, let me first. Don't matter. If we first will do anything but first follow Christ we don't understand the implications of discipleship, which is the thrust of what Jesus is teaching here. And he says in verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me. Again, there's the command, right? Follow me. It's simple. You come with me. You obey me. You obey the implications of what it means to follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's a strong statement, isn't it? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. There are people out there who aren't even thinking about following me that can go take care of those things. You as you've considered what it means to follow me, let's go. I mean, it's the authority of Christ to be able to say, this is what it is. And you may not like it, and it may not be comfortable, but ultimately, if you want to follow me, if you want a place in my kingdom, this is, this is, this is the groundwork that I am authoritative, that I am, I am the God, and the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and you take your orders from me, and you need to follow me. It's that no priority supersedes faithfulness and obedience to God in your life. There is no priority. And I said priorities because there are things that you are responsible for, that you ought to steward well. And none of those things should supersede faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. I mean, here we see in this text, one of these disciples, he was skipping out on Jesus. He was saying, Jesus, I love everything you're about. I love what you're saying. I love what you're doing. And if I can just go do some of these other things first, I'll come back later and I'll follow you. The lackadaisical attitude that this person has towards who Jesus is. 
You juxtapose that even up to, uh, if you think about the, the disciples who first were called to follow Jesus, what does it say? They dropped their nets, left daddy in the boat, and said, I got to go. Right? You see the difference there of those who do follow Jesus and those who would like to, but there's too much going on in my life. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. But there's a way even in our own lives that we can be tempted to skip out on Christ. Right? We, we skip out on ministry, on discipleship, on evangelism. And we know these are things that, that Christ prioritizes, right? That's why we do them. Reaching, teaching, and training, that's our entire mission, right? Is it God's will that you go reach people for Christ? You tell me. Okay, is it, is it God's will for you to teach people to be like Christ? Is it God's will for you to train people to serve Christ? So it would be reasonable to suggest, because that's our church's mission statement, that many of the things, particularly things that you ought to be involved in, no one says you have to be at all the things here. As a matter of fact, if you were all in a kid's classroom right now, I'd be very concerned. Uh, so there are things that you ought not to be doing here, but in some measure, everyone needs to both commit to a number of things within our church family that are a means to the ends of reaching people to be for, for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And then many of those have actual rhythms and pattern commitments that come after them, don't they? You go to church on Sunday. You go to your life group at some day during the week. And at some point, at least, you serve somewhere. And these are regular commitments that you have all just admitted to saying are God's will for you. But how many times do we validate our absence with excuses. Ah, I know this is what God wants, but I've got some other thing. I had a long day. I'm really tired. Well, they'll understand. It's not the fact that anybody will or won't understand. It's, are you validating your excuses? Are, are you explaining away your responsibility with excuses that ultimately are evidence of your unwillingness just to do the basic things that God has called you to do, particularly, and I'm, just talking, I'm not even talking about your personal life or your relationships, I'm just saying in the context of your church family. Because the worst thing that we can do is validate our excuses. Put it this way, point number three. We need to make sure we don't validate our excuses. Don't validate your excuses. There's an objection that I often get when it comes to this, right? Well, aren't we supposed to take care of our family? Aren't we supposed to prioritize going to work? Don't I have all these other responsibilities? Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting is, as you see the, the canon of Scripture closed, and you see the New Testament epistles, particularly Paul's epistles to the church, what you will notice after, in most of his letters, right, after a doctrinal section, there is this other section of practical living. And in those sections, I'm thinking particularly of things like Colossians uh, and Ephesians and Philippians and, and others, where then there's also this section that we've entitled family ethics. So if we're going to follow Jesus, then it does mean that we have to take care of our families. <coughs> that was a cough, but thank you. I appreciate it. That's no, no, good. What we're saying here is, yes, in the right order, God is going to call us to take care of our families. you got a stewardship if you're married. You have a stewardship if you're a parent. You have a stewardship if you're a child. But what we have here is a reversal of priorities that's the issue. The problem is that you choose those things over your relationship with Jesus. 
The problem with these comes when we're going to say, I need to first go do these things before I obey the Lord. And a lot of people say, well, God would want me to do this anyway. Yes, but God doesn't want you to do it out of order. He wants you to do it in the right order, which means that you've got to make a really, uh, you've got to make a big commitment to say, I'm going to make sure my priorities are done in the right order, which is often what happens. I do multitudes of counseling where it's simply this. Your priorities are out of order. You've got a lot of great things you're doing there, but the problem is even what Jesus is saying, your priorities are out of order. We're not saying that it's bad to go make sure you bury your father. We're not saying it's bad that you want a home. The problem is you want those things more than you want to be devoted to God, and that's ultimately your problem. And what we do, particularly in community, is we validate our absence and we validate our inability to fulfill our commitments with excuses. <coughs> Where we say, they'll understand, or I, I just, at the end of the day, I don't want to do it. So I'll get to some applications about that later. <coughs> There's an, uh, an illustration of a story in a book that I have my staff reading right now called The Pursuit of Excellence. And in this book, there's a man named John Beekman, who was a seminary student at Moody Bible Institute. And this was decades ago, and he had a passion for evangelism. But the problem is that the doctors discovered before he graduated that he had a heart defect that prevented him from military service and prevented him from serving in many missions organizations just because he wasn't going to be healthy enough to fulfill his work and his mission. Undeterred, John and his wife... Uh, eventually relocated to southern Mexico amongst an unreached group of about 15 indigenous tribes who lacked, among other things, uh, access to the Bible in their own language. Now, despite numerous surgeries over the years, I mean, many surgeries over the years, John and his wife, they persisted in this mission until he died at the age of 61. They didn't expect him to live that long. Most of us would hope to live further than 61, but in this man's life, that's the, all the years that the Lord gave him to say, this is what you're stewarded with. Live this life without excuse. Now, three years prior to this, John and his wife, they visited uh, these villages where he served for decades. And when he showed up the first time, there were no Christians, there was no Bible. And when he comes right before he dies, three years before he dies, he found 12,000 Christians living there. His ministry that he had founded also aided in giving Bible translations across the world in many tribal languages. Actually, as a matter of fact, before he died, he was firmly established as one of the most influential Bible translators of the 20th century. And all of that at the beginning, he said, you can't do this. You are, have an insufficient heart. You can't go to those mountainous terrains. You can't backpack up and down those villages. You can't do these things. And his, and his answer was simply, I'll do it as long as the Lord has me alive. If that means I miss a few years that I would have had otherwise, then so be it. Really, what it was is like, I'm not going to make an excuse not to do things that I know God wants me to do. And I'm not going to make excuses, even though 99% of the people around me would say, no, that's a good excuse. It's, the question isn't, is it a good excuse? The question is, is it an excuse? Is it just a rationale for me to explain away something that I know I ought to do? Excuses keep us from following Jesus. It's at a point that Jesus makes numerous times, and that's why we're studying it right here. I mean, he's just saying these are excuses for why you won't do the main thing, why you won't follow me. So I want to help you at least with three ways to help you stop validating your excuses. 
Number one, I want you to be honest about your motivation. Be honest about your motivation. Here's one of the big problems that we have here. Many of us, when we decide not to do something, whatever it is, you, you fill in the blank. When you decide not to do something, here's what we do. We then begin flipping through the Rolodex and we begin asking ourselves, well, what, what can be true? At least if we're not trying to lie. Like if you're trying to lie, you can come up with any excuse. I'm assuming you're not going to be trying to lie as a Christian in this room. Okay? But, but even, even if we're not lying, what we're doing is saying, okay, what I need to do is come up with a sufficient reason not to go do blank. And so I'm going to figure out what in my life that day would be understandable to the average person that if I were to bring that up with them, they would say, oh, that makes sense. It's okay. We'll see you next time. But that's our, our goal. We're trying to come up with a sufficient excuse. And we're not trying to lie saying we didn't have something going on. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to prop up our excuse and trying to say, can I not keep my commitment now? Can I not do that thing that was expected of me? Because look, look at these things and look at these things that have happened to me today. I was reading a book that said that uh, an excuse is worse than a lie because uh, an excuse is a lie that's guarded. Like, an excuse is one of those things where, well, how can anybody question me? How can anybody tell me that this isn't sufficient? Well, ultimately what we're going to say is, well, just because commitment is commitment. I mean, it's, it's the same reason why we, we make vows and, and we say, well, f- for better or worse, till death do us part. And, and then we have that illness or that disability that comes in. And 90% of the world, you go ask, right? They, you, there's plenty of research on it. Go ask, well, how many people would say it's okay to divorce that person who has a lifelong debilitating uh, issue that they can never reverse. The greater population of society would say, yeah, God, you could, you could divorce. That would, be, that would be okay. I mean, we get it. We understand. I mean, how can we tell you that you got to live with that for the rest of your life? And we're going to say, no, that's, that's hogwash. The Bible says that you be with each other. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, when does one flesh become not one flesh? Not in this life. It doesn't separate. You see the, the point here. What, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And we're going to say, we can say without a shadow of a doubt, can't we? You can't divorce your spouse because they have a debilitating injury where you're going to have to be their primary caretaker for the next decade, two, three decades. You can't do it. Right? You would be comfortable, I'd trust, in a Bible-believing church to look at somebody in the face and tell them that, wouldn't you? Well, I hope and trust that with wise discernment and tact, you'd be able to do that with your church family in a lot of ways. Primarily, you'd be able to do that in your own life. Are we making excuses for why we're not doing something? Because an excuse is just a lie that's guarded, and what we want to do is be honest about my motivations, which is what I I want to say. It's like, what's your real reason for not going? Is it because you just don't want to? Or is there something really, really wrong? Second, you need to ask yourself if God would rather you do something else. And what I mean by this is you have an excuse. You say, I'm not going to go do blank, so I'm going to stay at home. So, really, so your decision is, I'm going to stay home. This is now, ask the question, would God rather me do something else? That gets to the heart of the problem really quick, doesn't it? You want to talk about, uh, maybe you have plans with uh, a group of guys or a group of gals who are brothers and brothers or sisters in Christ, and you have made a commitment to go to dinner with them because you guys are going to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, and uh, it's after a long day of work, and you're about an hour from go time where you have to be at the restaurant, and you're saying, man, I had a really hard day. 
and I really don't want to go. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. My boss was a jerk, and it's just been a terrible day. And you say, I think I'm just going to text him, and I'm going to stay home. And then the next thing that's coming to your mind is, what would God want me to do? Would God rather me do something else? And I trust and I'm confident that the answer, 99.999% of the time, unless something extraordinary tragic happened to you, that God's desire would be that you go, that you keep your promise that you made, that you would let your yes be a yes and your no be a no, and you would be able to deny yourself and do that which you know God would be pleased with. And that's what it looks like to follow God faithfully in your actual life, day in and day out. Third thing I want you to do, make a principled decision. Make a principled decision. What I strive in my home and with me and my wife and now our our young son is to say, I don't want us getting to crossroads and having to sit there all the time and have these conversations about what we should or shouldn't do. What I want to do instead is I want to train our house to have principles. And so when we get to these crossroads, when we get to these forks in the road, we don't have to sit there for too long because we have principles. We have these principles of saying, I'm going to obey God's word. And what we found is usually if we have these principles that we've set in place, we recognize the answer is pretty clear. We have these principles, even when we get in the conflict, that we're going to resolve our conflict together, that we're going to share our grievance in great humility and respect, and the other person has to be able to address and confirm what the problem is so that we can address it and come to a good conclusion. And then if repentance needs to happen, it needs to happen. If reconciliation happens, it needs to happen. And then we seek forgiveness and we move forward. You know what we don't have to do? We don't get into a fight and say, well, I ain't even dealing with this. I don't care. I'm dealing with this. Does God want me to deal with this? Yep. Does God want you to live in an understanding way with your wife? Yep. Does God want you to forgive others as he's forgiven you? Yep. Does God want you to consider other people more significant than yourself? Yep. All right. Principal decision. Let's go. Do you see, do you see that? That is your whole Christian life. And if I made it really simple for you there, that's just the Word of God teaching us what to do in our life. But the problem is we make excuses, and one of the reasons we do that is because we don't have principled decisions. We're saying, I get to a situation, and I decide whatever I want to do in the moment. And then we wonder why that outcome becomes a terrible thing. we got to make sure that we don't validate our excuses. And we can do that by not making principled decisions. You know, much like those wedding vows that we've been talking about, they're a one-time thing, right? One time you stand there, you make these commitments before your friends and family and for God. And those understood rightly require a lifelong commitment. That You understand that following Jesus, it does include a one-time profession of faith, right? That's how we know someone's saved. How do we know they're saved? Because they responded. I mean, this is what you see in the book of Acts when Peter's preaching the sermon and, and people, everyone's cut to the heart. They say, well, what should we do? And he says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you. Repent and believe. What, what, what did he say? You need to confess your need for Jesus. You need to turn from your sin. You need to trust in him. And you need to follow him. And really for the Christian, what this is, is a lot like that wedding vow, is that profession of faith is a profession that includes a lifelong commitment to following Jesus and forsaking ourselves. And I trust that as we open up this text this morning, that it helps us understand that, that Christ calls us to, above all things, above everything, a commitment to his authority and a commitment to his expectations and a commitment to say no to yourself and yes to God. Will you pray with me? God, I pray.
even now, I know this the sermon, it's strong. There's concepts and principles there that, that do prick our hearts. And you teach us that your word is to wound us and to heal us. And I just pray that it wounded where it needed to wound and it healed where it needed to heal. I pray that you comfort the afflicted in here and that you afflict the comfort, the comforted. Those people who aren't moving, they don't want to move, God, I pray that you would move them. Those people who are here and in great despair, I pray that this would be great comfort to them, that they recognize that forsaking this world is just a reasonable response to the call to follow our Savior. And ultimately, that we're going to find a place in eternity with you where every tear will be wiped away, that every fear will be calmed, Right, every, every disease and every sickness will be vanished, and there we will be with you for eternity. So I pray that between our salvation and between that day, that our life would be lived in obedience to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing together once more. for joining us in this service today. We do invite you to stick around and have some time with fellowship and grab a coffee and a donut, and you are dismissed.